Hello everyone, this is Steve Marinucci, Beatles Examiner on Examiner.com, welcoming you to another installment of Things We Said Today, where our weekly freewheeling discussion that will go anywhere and anywhere, talking about the Beatles, past, present, and maybe to come. Let me first introduce my three co-hosts, starting with... uh, they're all on the East Coast. I'm lonely out here on the West Coast, but they're on the East Coast. Starting up north with uh, Alan Cozen, um, who is our musicologist and uh, has is also uh, connected to Beatle Fan Magazine and has written a couple of books on the Beatles and and uh, knows knows so much that we could only begin to tap what he knows. But anyway, uh, good evening. <laughs> Good evening. Uh, Hello, Alan. Thanks, Steve. Hi, Steve. Hello, everyone. And next, going down the uh, eastern seaboard uh, in uh, Connecticut, we have Mr. Ken Michaels, host of uh, Every Little Thing. Hello, Ken. Hi, Steve. Hi, everybody. And going further down uh, the east coast to the state of Pennsylvania, we have uh, also uh, with Beetle Fan, uh, a longtime uh, writer for Beetle Fan, we have Mr. Al Sussman. Hello, Al. Hi. Hi, Steve. Hello there, everybody. And we have a special guest with us this evening. We have uh, a Beetle uh, author, the author of the book I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Mr. Anthony Robustelli. Uh, hello there, Anthony. Hey, guys. How are you? Good to be here. Let's start. We're going to start before we get into the discussion about uh, the book. We we're going to talk about uh, the really stunning news that broke last night that a lot of us, I think all of us heard this morning um, about the passing of David Bowie. And um, I got to tell you, when I woke up and saw that note float across my uh, in my email, I was literally blown away. I could not believe it. And um there's, you know, we don't know. Uh, this is on the day of the death, so those of you listening probably have heard some details or no details that we do not. Um, but what's really interesting is that they managed to keep it silent, uh, his his uh, illness, and nobody knew. Although it looks like there may be some clues in in the music that he. Uh, uh, the album he just put out, but I'm going to go around the table first and get some get comments. So let me start with you, Alan. Um, anything you want to you want to mention about uh, a Bowie, uh, you know, Beatle connections or whatever? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, my experience was pretty much the same as yours, and probably pretty much the same as everybody's. I mean, uh, no one sort of saw that coming. I mean, he just put out an album on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and a good one, an interesting one, is as always a change up. You know, is 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 he uh, is really? I mean, outside the Beatles, he is one of the most creative guys in the pop world. Um, he was constantly reinventing himself, and the characters he came up with were often really fascinating. Um, he, of course, worked with John, as as we all know. Um, the, the thing he did with John fame wasn't my favorite Bowie or Lennon thing, but... Uh, you know, they worked together, even though um, John, you know, John sometimes used Bowie as kind of an example of what he didn't want to do with his own music. You know, when he talked about how uh, he was going to make real records about him and Yoko just talking about what 
they perceived and what they were feeling and thinking and doing. He used to say, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not doing Ziggy Stardust. I'm not you know, creating a, a fictional character. I don't see the point in that. But of course, there is a point in it. I mean, Bowie did it brilliantly. Um, <laughs> some people do fiction, some people nonfiction. And, and Bowie was, I guess, a fiction writer among pop composers and uh yeah i I, i'm really shocked uh i spent the day listening to his music actually and there's just so much variety there it's incredible Mm -hmm. yeah really the the you know the first thing that came across my mind this morning um and this really doesn't have a, a beetle connection but the two there are two people that should be really that really should thank their careers for him and I believe one of them already has posted something. I don't know if the other one has. Would be Madonna and Lady Gaga. Oh yeah. Beyond without without a shadow of a doubt. I'm I, and I'm not comparing them with him because what he did was much better than both of them. But they definitely, you know, use the same kind of metamorphosis thing that he did. Um, but uh, yeah, wow, um, Al. You know, it, 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 Alan actually made a, an excellent point in saying that David Bowie was a, uh, you know, was a, a, a you know, a sort of a rock and roll fiction writer because of the fact that, as Alan mentioned, he did create all of these different characters, Aladdin Sane and Ziggy Stardust <laughs> and the Thin White Duke and, you know, on and on and on. And did keep reinventing himself and and what you just mentioned about Madonna. Uh obviously she uh she, you know, took notes from the uh the David Bowie playbook, but she also was able to, you know, to reinvent herself over the course of her career. Lady Gaga you know, that's you know, she basically has taken ho- her whole thing from from Madonna, or at least at least for the 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 early years of her career. But David Bowie did he was able to keep just keep reinventing himself. And uh, you know, I to be honest, I wasn't a huge fan just because his his particular brand of music is not really mine. But he was you know he was always interesting, never stale, and you know, I guess because of the fact that he kept reinventing himself. So he really has to go down as one of the truly unique figures in the uh, in the, the history of rock and roll. No doubt about it. Oh, no, no doubt about it. There were I just posted a, a lengthy article on the Beatles, uh, Beatle connections and, you know, and uh, the Beatle the way the Beatles intertwined with him. And I won't go through all of them. Um but uh, uh, there were two things. I well, one of the thing one of the things that's interesting is that uh, Ringo was in, and I I don't recall. I don't haven't seen this movie in years. Ringo was in Z- the Ziggy Stardust movie, I guess, uh, and they just showed that on TV like last Friday. The obviously, I think they timed it for the day of the release of the album. But I remember seeing it in my. Uh, DVR listings because I record Beatles stuff automatically and and uh, I was kind of surprised about that. And the other thing was there's a video in the story I just mentioned and I'm sure it'll probably get passed around that Paul McCartney introduced uh, David Bowie and Mick Jagger singing Dancing in the Street at a Princess Trust concert and um, and McCartney is playing guitar in the in the video and it's uh, 
it's really it, i mean it's a great performance you know i mean that song was a great performance but um that's something that i'm not sure that a lot of people know about the the john lennon thing of course is everybody knows about that uh fame and uh, so yoko and and may pang and john lennon and and julian all posted uh uh statements and um may sent me a, a statement also so um there's a but uh, yeah there it's it's really interesting and ringo of course also posted a statement um, but um, Ken? Yeah, I read Paul's statement today, which was actually very beautiful, what he had to say. Mm-hmm. And Yoko was, was pretty much saying that um, uh, that she and John didn't have many friends, but David Bowie was a friend of theirs. And in a way, David was like a godfather mm-hmm. to Sean. Although I've also heard that Elton John was supposed to be Sean's godfather, too. But um, <laughs> And also, there's there's um, there's something that I read that David Bowie wrote about how how he looked up to John Lennon so much and he was the person that he most aspired to be like because he was a visionary and honest in his lyrics and um, talking about the friendship and how it all started and that they met at a party at Elizabeth Taylor's and then they were also at the Grammy Awards together and uh, in fact David Bowie had to give an award a Grammy Award to Aretha Franklin and prior to that David said to John that he didn't think that the American audience really understood him or loved him. And so when uh, David gave the the Grammy Award to Aretha on stage, she actually said that, you know, I feel so good I could kiss David Bowie. But she never did. Right. And she walked off the stage. And then so David walked in the other direction, and John went over to David and kissed him. <laughs> right. And said, now you see America loves you. So, um, and apparently when John went to Hong Kong at the end of the 70s, I guess, with Yoko and Sean. Um, David was there with him. So, you know, their friendship continued. I know that John and Paul especially really thought very much of David. And like um, everyone's been saying, he was very much, and I'm surprised we're not bringing up the Beatles here, because the Beatles were all about evolving and constantly changing as a band musically and even uh, visually. They were always changing their appearances. So when you talk about the David Bowie playbook and then how that influenced Madonna, I also think of the Beatles in that same breath, really. But David was always exciting because he was constantly changing musically. And like Al said, he never got stale. He was always looking for something different to put out all the time. So um, especially in the 70s, it was a very exciting time for him. He never wanted to be a formula artist. He never wanted to keep putting out the same thing. Mm-hmm. So um, he was, you know, one of the great geniuses of our time, really. And I love a lot of his catalog, although I certainly don't know all of it. But like I heard someone say on television today, he's one of those artists kind of like the Beatles, where, you know, years later, you're going to discover something in his music that you never knew before. And his catalog is so, so big. He's, he released a lot of albums. So there's quite a lot there to explore. And I also like the fact that in addition to fame and Across the Universe, which was on the same album with Young Americans, and John was on that too, their cover of John's song, David Bowie also covered Try Some, Buy Some, which uh, (laughs) that's a very complex song, although that's probably, it's a very unusual song, and it probably fit David's wheelhouse right there, although he did say that he was first introduced to that song from Ronnie Spector's version. But the fact that he did, you know, a rather unusual George Harrison song to cover, I really admire him for that. 
but uh, definitely one of our treasures and, and one of the greatest talents we've had and a true innovator, David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Did you mention he, he recorded uh, Across the Universe? Yeah, David Bowie did on the same album with Fame. Right. John Lennon was on both Fame and Across the Universe. Right. Okay. And John did backing vocals on Across the Universe and apparently played guitar too. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, our con- our sincere condolences to David Bowie's family and also, I mean, to his fans. I mean, everybody's just in shock today. It's really sad. But anyway, um, so let's let's talk about. Uh, let's bring in uh, Anthony Robustelli. Hello, Anthony. Again. Hey, how are you guys? We're doing we're doing great. Let's talk about your book. Um, I want to tell you, I really, uh, I, you know, uh, there are several books like this that go through track by track, and I always eat this stuff up. I love reading these details. What made you decide to do this? You know, what? I've been a Beatles fan my whole life, and. I was always looking for a book that was a little more detailed with the song by song. There are great ones out there, of course, Revolution in the Head and, you know, a number of other books that have done song by song analysis of, of, you know, everything that the Beatles have done. I wanted to go a little bit deeper. So, you know, this book is my first and it's the first of seven volumes. This one just covers the first two albums, Please Please Me and with the Beatles and all the related singles. And I really wanted to dig into aspects that get glossed over a lot uh for example you know those first two albums are chock full of covers and when people talk about their covers a lot of times uh because of the songwriting genius of lennon and mccartney and of course harrison later on the cover aspect is spoken about but not dug in really deep to like what what was the difference between their versions of these songs and the originals and there and there are quite a few you know lots of changes and you know different feels and things that they brought to the originals that maybe the originals didn't have Uh, a big thing is that a lot of the originals were not guitar heavy so the guitars took over for a lot of times for sax and piano and ended up giving it a raw edgier sound Uh, money's a great example as well as as numerous others on those first two albums and i wanted to dig into that and i also wanted to dig into their playing i I also feel like because of the songwriting and the production which i speak of in great detail uh, because those were so highly elevated a lot of times as players they're not spoken about as much as a lot of other guitarists bass players drummers i think you see it more nowadays i remember reading an article when beatles rock band came out that just the fact that People, drummers were trying to play along with Ringo on I Am the Walrus, and it was so hard to get a perfect score on Expert. People started to realize the innovative things he was doing that I I think for a long time, especially in the 80s and even into the early 90s, Ringo was regarded as, you know, I, I know there have been people that have written, oh, he was the luckiest guy in the world to have joined the Beatles. But I don't think the Beatles would have been the Beatles without Ringo. I don't think we would be talking about them today had they gone with anybody else other than Ringo. He was the perfect fit. So in this book, I really try to dig into their playing styles and the things that were really innovative. You know, people know McCartney's a great bass player, but I think they tend to talk more about his later things, you know, starting maybe around 66 with Revolver and then into Pepper and, you know, those kind of bass lines. But when you really listen to the early stuff, he's doing a lot of the things that he would do later on with hammer-ons and really melodic bass lines that I think get lost in the shuffle because 
a lot of people think their early material was so simplistic. And, you know, one of the things I write about in there that I, I still find a little hard to believe, and there's a lot of revisionist history when you talk to McCartney and George Martin and even Ringo, where stories just get, you know, told over and over again to the point where they believe them. And I find it hard to believe that when George Martin heard songs like P.S. I Love You and Ask Me Why, which are harmonically very, very sophisticated songs, that he passed them off as, oh, they didn't really have anything. The best thing they had was Love Me Do, which is the simplest mm -hmm. song in their canon. And the fact that it's somehow in his mind he forgot P.S. I Love You and Ask Me Why, which, in my opinion, are two of my favorite early Beatles songs, just because of their harmonic inventiveness and where George Martin was coming from with his pedigree, it's strange that he would dismiss their early material that they brought to him as, you know, not being very good. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Alan? Um, yeah, I was wondering, you know, reading uh, through this, um, new information is always coming to light, you know, and it's, it's one of the perils of writing these things. Do you, do you, uh, do you feel that there are things that you would like to update now if you had the opportunity? There are a couple things, you know, and I, I, when I was getting close to being finished with the book, Mark Lewison's Tune In came out, which right. I ended up quoting sort of heavily in the introduction to the book because there was a lot of new light shed on just how the Beatles got signed and, you know, the whole thing that was going on with his affair with his secretary, which ended up being his wife, and, you know, how they were, his superiors were a little, you know, they would be, they could be quite cross with him for being the innovator that he was. George Martin didn't really always play by the rules, which made him the perfect producer for the Beatles. And, mm -hmm. you know, there have been a couple things. I have put out a revised edition since the very first one um, mm. that changed a few things in there. And, and it's true, there's new, new light gets shed all the time. And I think one of the biggest things that we've found out in many, many years is how they got signed really for the publishing deal. And George Martin was sort of forced to record them. It wasn't, well, I heard them and I thought, oh, okay, they're pretty good. I mean, they basically told him, you need to do this. And when they came to that first recording session, many, many times you hear that they said it was an audition. But by the paperwork that Mark Lewison dug up, it wasn't an audition. It was, you know, it was a recording. They were planning on making a record that day. Right. The other thing I think is, uh, I think we, we have a new perspective now about, and, and it's a little confusing to, to me anyway, about their relationship to songwriting in those early days. I mean, um, the image of them that Mark presents is that they were mainly a cover band that had a few songs, uh, and yet the importance of the songwriting, uh, apart, leaving aside from the rest of their career, but in their getting signed, I mean, they got signed because of the songwriting. And yet, you know, it's sort of confusing to me, like where the shift occurred, you know, where they where they began to realize that, that their job really was to be a band that wrote its own songs, not a cover band, because the cover stuff persists into, you know, to, to 1965 almost really. Right. Yeah, I think that um, something he unearthed there that was sort of fascinating was I think we've all been under the impression that. You know, John and Paul, while they were very young, when they first met, Paul had already been writing a bit. And 
you know, they got together and started writing songs. And it, it, I think we've all known the exaggeration of, oh, we have over 100 songs we've written. I think they had, you know, a number of songs finished and then a lot of fragments. I think that once they started gigging a lot, and it seems like from Lewison's book that once they were in Hamburg, they were working so much and they weren't thinking of songwriting as, as their main thing anymore. They were just like, okay, we have a job. We have to work so many hours a night playing. We need to know as much material as possible. And I think that's where a lot of the B-sides came in. They were trying to keep it fresh. And it was strange to, to see that they seemed a little embarrassed of their songs to play them live at the Cavern. And the fact that Brian Epstein supposedly was the one that felt that that was, oh, you write too? That's such a major plus. Nobody else is really doing that. You need to focus on that and make that a major part of what you're about because that's going to be the thing that sets you apart from all the other groups in Liverpool and at that point really most of you know there really weren't groups at the time but you know setting you apart from the idea of the Tim Patton Alley thing of producers getting you a song you record the song and that's what you put out and I think you know nobody knew to the extent that Brian Epstein did have an influence on that and and said this is a great thing we need to showcase the fact that you can write and one of the telling signs is when um, Brian Epstein sent them the telegram saying, you know, we need new material, practice new material. And Lennon and McCartney thought that meant, OK, well, we need to write some new material. I think they always had it in them because it seems like as soon as they really focused on, OK, we're going to be songwriters after about a two year hiatus, they, it was like full steam ahead. The, the amount of material they came up with. And the quality of the material far surpassed the stuff they were writing a couple years earlier. And I don't know, maybe they got to a point where they hit a roadblock. They didn't think the songs were that good and they just wanted to be a working band. And it wasn't until the idea of going to EMI, you know, and I, th I think the whole thing with the Decca audition, having a few of their songs on there, which I personally like the three Lennon McCartney originals that are on the Decca auditions. I'm, I'm very glad that we have them to listen to because it sheds a lot of light on even there are little sophisticated things in those songs. The, some of the intros and the chord changes. Um, mm -hmm. It's not as simplistic as, you know, A Love Me Do, which you know, is probably the simplest song they ever did. Right. I mean, there, there is also the possibility that Mark is wrong about whether they valued their songwriting at that point, too. You know, I, that's I, true. I, I still have some doubts about that myself. Um, <laughs> right. Whether that's actually what happened. Um, yeah. But it is, you know, we don't know in that little period of time there that even McCartney nowadays doesn't really talk much about songwriting besides the very early songwriting. And then once, you know, 62 came around, there seems to be like a little void there that nobody's talking, like nobody ever talked, none of them have ever talked about being in Hamburg and sitting down and trying to write songs and do any of that there. I've never really heard that from anybody. That's true. And they um, probably didn't have hmm. the time. You got to think of those nights and all the partying they were doing. They probably, mm -hmm. the first thing on their mind probably wasn't, oh, let's, you know, sit down and write a song. When they were writing the earlier ones, they were, you know, McCartney was skipping school. They were getting together during the day. I think they were living a different lifestyle. Right. Yeah. You talked about um, how other books haven't focused that much on the Beatles as players. And I think you're coming to this as a musician yourself, right? Can you, can you yes. tell us what your musical background is? Uh, yeah, I'm a producer. I have a recording studio in Brooklyn. Uh, I went mm -hmm. to NYU for jazz performance 
mm-hmm. and got a master's in education. And, you know, I've always played in bands. I was lucky enough when I was playing with the band Spearhead, we actually opened for McCartney in Glastonbury in mm-hmm. 2006. Oh, wow. So I've done a lot of touring and, and, you know, being a musician, I wanted to write it from the musician's perspective, but still try to keep it, you know, not so over the top where Elaine couldn't read it. Like I'm a big fan of Walter Everett's two books. Those are, right. you know, for me, those are amazing, but I understand that those, if you're not a musician, a lot of that can completely go over your head. And I've right. heard some people say, you know, I've had a lot of non-musicians read the book and say, Hey, even though there's a lot of musical speak, I get it. And there's enough, enough written for the layman that, you know, I could enjoy what, you know, he's talking about song by song that it's not, you know, as much of a textbook type of thing as a few of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yes. Thanks. Thank you, Alan. Um, let me, let's go to uh, Ken. Ken. All right, Anthony, uh, really great job on the book. And um, the very beginning of the book really goes through um, your kind of evaluation of each of the Beatles as musicians, what they all brought to the band, I do want to bring up, because you mentioned Mark Lewis in here, one of the things that you did say here in the very beginning, which it contrasts what Mark said when uh, we're talking about those three Lennon-McCartney songs the Beatles did for DECA, you said that EMI Publishing, and, and uh, the arm of EMI was uh, Ardmore and Beach, Beachwood, um, that they were interested in Hello Little Girl and Love of the Loved, whereas Mark Lewison wrote that it was Like Dreamers Do. Did you ever uh, come come across... Any information, uh, research on this? I, I did, and looking into it, there were a few other sources off the top of my head, I can't remember what they were, that were sort of specific about which tunes they were interested in. You know, I always find it funny that George Martin doesn't even remember which song. He said he heard, uh, your feet's too big. So I think there's a lot of muddiness going on with exactly what was going on at the time, but I have read in a few places that th- those were the ones that they were thinking were the hits that they wanted to you know, really go with that. And I find it interesting, you know, whether it was the two that I was talking about or the two that Mark was talking about, that none of those ended up really getting much of a shot because when they went in to go play on the first day, they didn't play any of those. You know, I think Mm. in the rehearsal before they played through a number of songs. So I'm assuming that those might've been played uh, before they actually went to record but I just find it funny with the material that we know was available at the time that they found it so hard to pick anything and that they did pick Love Me Do. I know Love Me Do at the time stood out as a very different sounding record with its sparseness and, you know, the acoustic guitar and the harmonica. And I think maybe that's what they were going for. But the other songs, I I feel like they didn't ever get a total fair shot when it came to, you know, produce, working with George Martin, that they were, not that they were scrambling for original material, but that none of those early songs was even considered for the first album. And I think, you know, at least one of them, I think could have fit in rather nicely on there instead of one of the covers, possibly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's interesting that you say what you just said about George Martin not recognizing P.S. I Love You and Ask Me Why, because I've been saying that for years when George Martin goes on and on saying the best they can come up with is Love Me Do. And, you know, I'm wondering what what he didn't hear in P.S. I Love You. But I think it's just a matter of over time, you know, this is his memory. This is how he remembers it. But also, 
something else that's brought to light here, and, and the whole thing about the songwriting, one of the things I like to bring up, and we may do it a bit too much for the other co-hosts here on this show, is that song, How Do You Do It, which I think plays such a big part in the history of the Beatles and what was to follow, because George Martin wanted that song to be not only... Originally, he wanted it to be the the follow up to "Love Me Do," but he wanted it to be the first single ahead of "Love Me Do." He thought right. more highly of that song. So there must have been some kind of leverage that the Beatles had as songwriters, given the fact that the publishing arm wanted their songs that we don't know about, or maybe came into play, and George Martin doesn't remember that. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, how is there any possibility that the reason why How Do You Do It was eventually turned down as the first single because of that? I, I do think that that probably had a lot to do with it because the whole reason they were in there in the first place and that they George Martin was sort of, you know, forced to, to do this session, I think it was because they did want the publishing and they figured EMI, they could make money off the record and they could also make money off the publishing if they have two original songs, if they did, how do you do it right there? They're losing the publishing. So they're losing that, that income stream. I think George Martin as a producer just thought, okay, this is a hit. And he was apparently right because it did become a big hit for Jerry and the pacemakers who sort of copped the Beatles arrangement with the added uh, seven chord that that's a little bit striking. The Beatles, I think they definitely beetled it up for that song. I don't think they just took it and did it like the demo that was sent to them. So I think I always felt like it does sound like a Beatles song, maybe a little more bubblegum than they wanted it to be. But when it comes to like the chord changes and the turnarounds, they would use those chord changes in their own songs. So I think they just didn't like the sentiment of it. And I think they felt they were being forced to follow the year's tradition of a producer finding material and you go in and record it. And I think they were very headstrong for going in there without a ton of original material and basically saying we have to do this. But I think they did have the backing of the publishing company wanting that extra revenue stream. Mm. It'd be interesting if we could actually see documentation, some kind of proof that that had a lot to do with deciding whether or not Love Me Do and then Please Please Me being the the first two singles as opposed to How Do You Do It. It would be fascinating if it can be proven. Some of these things, you know, it's so long ago, and no matter how much research you do, some things it's just impossible to find out for sure what happened, especially when the memories are so cloudy of the people that were actually there at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And I do feel, you know, as time goes on more and more, give credit to Brian Epstein for these, for these, uh, the idea to make sure that you have original material in there, because had they not done that at DECA, <laughs> Things could have taken a different turn altogether. Right. Had they just gone in and, you know, I always thought some of the Decca songs were a strange choice, like Sheik of Araby. And, you know, when they had a lot of heavier material, but had they just gone in and, and really just played a full rock and roll set and not had those little twists and turns, especially with the three originals. You're right. Things could have gone very differently. And, you know, I, who knows what would have happened. And we also know that Brian he knew that the more lead vocalists you had in the group, the more attractive it became. And he was pushing to get George Harrison to have more lead vocals early on. Right, George had a lot at that DECA audition. And, you know, early BBC sessions, 
George sang a lot more than he ended up singing as they went along. And I always find an interesting story that McCartney tells of, you know, a day when him and John were walking down by uh, the Walton by the church over there and asked each other, you know, should we include George in the songwriting or should we just keep it the two of us? But he said that they decided, you know, it would just be easier to write with just the two of us. And I could, I can't even imagine what things would be like had they said, oh, let's include George right from the beginning. Because George quickly, I, I think, became a, a formidable songwriter. A lot of people start to say, oh, it wasn't until 1969 something and that he really you know, came into his own. But I mean, I, I think right from the very beginning, I, I love Don't Bother Me. I think that's a great song. I think for that song is the darkest song the Beatles had recorded at that point. And it came from, <laughs> from Harrison. I mean, musically, it's really dark. Lyrically, it's really dark. It was a very different song for the Beatles on their second album. And it's coming from, you know, the junior songwriter. Right. Okay. Steve? Okay. Thank you, Ken. Um, Al? Alan made the point that Anthony is a um, is a musician on his you know in, in his in his other his other life, uh, <laughs> but so I, I'm not sure if I've ever asked you about this before, Anthony. But back in the uh, back in the Stone Age when uh, when I was a teenager, uh, and I would go to high school dances, I used to go up to guys in the in the bands and I would would ask them. I said. How come you don't do Beatles songs? And they said, we can't do Beatles songs. They're too, they're too tough. And uh, let, me, let me ask you as a musician, uh, especially, the, especially the material you're dealing with in, the, um, in your book, the first, the first two albums, why were those songs so complex or, or, or so deceptively complex? Or I should ask, how? were those songs so deceptively complex? Well, I think one of the major things, Dylan said it best when he talked about the Beatles and he had first heard them on the radio. And I, and I believe Alan wrote about this in um, his book on I Want to Hold Your Hand, that he was just like, these chords, these chords are, are ridiculous. And I feel like that was something that the Beatles always had. You, you have to think rock and roll didn't come around until you know, they were basically teenagers. So you have to think all the formative years of what you were listening to was not rock and roll. They were listening to, you know, whatever was on the radio at the, uh, at the time. And a lot of the older songs, which they would play um, rock and roll versions of, had very complex chord changes. And I think they weren't just coming from, you know, the Rolling Stone school of we want to be blues artists and, you know, the one, four, five thing they were drawing on a lot of different experiences musically that they had as children and songs they had heard. So right from the beginning, their chord changes were inventive. I mean, it was very rare for them to have a song that didn't at least have one or two chords that were out of key, meaning that, you know, it was a jarring chord, something you didn't expect to hear, something that was coming from a different tonal center. So mm -hmm. I think that's part of the reason why you know, the songs are complex. But I think the reason a lot of bands don't cover them, even the best Beatles cover bands, and we know there are a lot of them out there, I think some of the hardest stuff to cover is the early material because mm -hmm. of the feel. There's something about the feel of it that I, I don't think I've ever heard a cover band, even the best ones, really do justice to the very early material. It never seems to have that urgency that they had. Um, 
you know, I've seen people do great versions of I Am the Walrus or Strawberry Fields or the Fab Faux does the whole white album. Right. Um, but that very early mm. material from the first few albums, I don't think I've ever seen anybody that just has the right vibe to it, the right energy. It always seems to be just lacking a little bit in the oomph. And I don't think you're ever going to, I think, and I think that has a lot to do with their playing styles. You know, Lennon as a rhythm guitarist, he dug in so hard into his rhythm playing and then the way Starr and McCartney would lay the foundation and then Harrison with just little nuances on top, you know, he was, he was never like a Clapton-esque guitarist, which, you know, he knew that too. He, they weren't a jam band. He would be mm -hmm. able to create melodies. Um, you know, something that came out relatively recently was in uh, Martin Scorsese's documentary when McCartney says that, that George came up with that. And I love her guitar riff, which you know, is such a major part of the song. You should have definitely sure. gotten money and songwriting credit for yeah. that. And I think, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of that comes from just the four of them together and an energy that it just sort of, the joy bounces off the record. You can't, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is, but that's what I found. Like a lot of people tend to shy away from the early stuff covering it because a lot of times it just sounds sort of like a wedding band doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Matter of fact, now uh, again, uh, going to the material that you that you deal with in your book, uh, I've always felt that the that there is a quantum leap um, that they that, that the Beatles made a, a quantum musical leap between the first album and with the Beatles. Uh, and I wonder if you feel the same and, and why. Oh, definitely without a doubt. I mean, with the Beatles is one of my favorite albums. It's just, mm -hmm. it, it's so different. I, I think we all love Please Please Me for the, the energy and the exuberance of a new band in the studio. But number one, the songwriting from one album to the other, it, it has evolved significantly with songs like All My Loving, it won't be long, not a second time, all I've got to do. It, it's very different than, you know, songs that I still love, but something like I saw her standing there, you know, I, it, it's just a different animal. It's within those few short months, their sophistication just blossomed. And also the choice of covers, I think, is way better on with the Beatles than, um, than the first album, Please Please Me. I, I, I think that, you know, they had the whole Smokey Robinson thing happening. And I, I, I think that the cover choices are elevated on the second album. The first album was heavy with a lot of the girl groups and you know, mm -hmm. just sort of simple songs like Chains or Boys, um, which are great in their own right. But they don't stand up to, you know, their version of Please, Mr. Postman or um, You Really Got a Hold on Me. It, it's I, I don't know what happened in those few months, but. It's it's such a leap, but I you know as we were talking earlier, you you know you guys are mentioning Bowie as an example of someone who changed album to album. I think another great contemporary example of that is Elvis Costello, who worked with McCartney. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but the Beatles were really you know the innovators for wanting to change things constantly. They 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 dropped instruments left and right. The harmonicas on a bunch of records, okay, we've used it, it's gone. You know later on the sitar, the mellotron. Uh, the 12-string guitar, things that they used for a period of time and then just put them away and didn't return to them because they wanted things to keep evolving. And I think mm -hmm. if you look from one album to the next, 
through their whole career, I feel like every album is different. You could sometimes pair the two albums that came out within a year together. But even it's, it's such a short period of time, too, when you think of how infrequently artists put out music now in general, how long they have between albums. Some artists won't put out something for three or four years. And they were putting out a constant stream of music basically every six months. Like I couldn't even imagine any artist today where you're getting two albums and, you know, four singles a year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was, yeah. that was the climate then, and they were under contract to do so. Right. So they had to do it. <laughs> right, they didn't have a choice. So maybe that was, you know, when you push someone to that point, you know, the genius comes out. Right. You won't find a lot of artists volunteering for that stuff today, that's for sure. No, no. way. <laughs> Why? Um, Anthony, let me ask about um, let me. I, I, I this is a probably a, uh, a you know a sore subject with everybody. But since you're a musician, um, give me a, your analysis of Pete Best and why he didn't work. Well, you know what? I just I, I I've heard you know I've, I've met a number of people who know him well and has said he's such a, a really nice guy and a genuine down to earth person. But I just he was a one-trick pony. I mean, the DECA auditions and those few songs that we're able to hear from the early BBC shows that he was on and his version of Love Me Do. It's just, he didn't have a lot of depth and everything sort of sounded the same. It was like this, he had this 16th note drum fill that he did. You know, a perfect example is compare his version of Money to the version on With the Beatles. It's, it's night and day. It's not even, and I'm not blaming the whole thing on him. But he had that little 16th note drum roll that he did all the time. Mm -hmm. And his, his playing, I don't think it had a swagger to it. It didn't, it, it didn't fit with what everybody else was doing. It seemed like it was on a different planet almost. And I just think that, you know, you got to think they hired him to go to Hamburg with very short time. They had had trouble with drummers always. And they finally got somebody that was at least, you know, in the band and they had a drummer. And you have to think, once they went to Hamburg, they were very busy after that, up until the time that they were recording at EMI. And I think through a lot of that time, they would have liked to get rid of him. But being that they had had so much trouble even finding a drummer, the idea of firing a drummer and rehiring one with, you know, just gigs on the horizon and nothing further, I think that's why they basically held off. But I think... They right from the beginning, they weren't very happy with his playing. And I also think that the way John Paul and George grew from the time they went to Hamburg over the course of the next period of time until they recorded, they developed a lot more. I think Hamburg had a great influence on the three of them. I don't think Pete went anywhere, really. I think Pete was the drummer he was when they went to Hamburg, and he was the same drummer when they went into EMI Studios to record Love Me Do. He didn't develop, I don't think. And I think they noticed that. I think they realized at the time, you know, they were astute and they were very bright individuals, the three of them. I think that they knew that they were growing and he wasn't growing along with them. Plus, you know, he was very much an outsider. The three of them had a thing and he was not part of that thing. Everything from not changing his hairstyle to the fact that he didn't hang out with them after. And I've been in a lot of bands my career and a really big part of a band feeling and sounding good and being good is that you have a certain energy together. You know, things eventually 
with almost all bands end up being a problem down the road. But initially you're hoping that all the members are like on the same page. And Pete was just somewhere else. And I don't think that they ever felt very comfortable with him. He felt like an outsider. And just having Ringo play those few times when he sat in for Pete, they knew that it sounded better, number one. And number two, they would finish their show and Ringo would still be hanging out with them. And that energy made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al- Alan, you want to ask uh, one more question? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I'm looking at the, uh, just flipping through the book and looking at the information that you give for each song. I mean, you've, you know, I'm just saying for, for people who haven't looked through it, I mean, you've got the key, you've got the beats per minute, you've got what amplifiers and what guitars they're using and, and all of that stuff. And not to mention your analysis. Um, so it, it really is a, a useful resource, uh, for, for people you know, who want to know what went into the songs. But as we say, it's only the first two albums and you've got uh, six more books coming. So can you give us any idea of what the schedule looks like? Well, I'm working on the second one now. I'm a little sidetracked because I'm also writing uh, the Steely Dan FAQ for Hal Leonard Backbeat book. So that has taken a little bit of a precedence just because I have a deadline for that one. But that Mm -hmm. one will be done um, in the next few months, and then I'm going to jump back to where I left off on the Beatles one. So I'm hoping that um, Volume 2, I'm thinking, will be out early 2017. Okay, and which, okay. is that just two albums as well? Yeah, it's gonna, everything's going to be, you know, basically a year. So uh, that'll be oh, Hard Day's okay. Night and Beatles for Sale and all the singles. Um, okay. And then uh, after that, hopefully, if I'm not, I, I, I'm just going to be, like, plowing through with the rest of the volumes, because... Yeah, there's a lot of material there. <laughs> oh yeah. What kind of what kind of things as you were going through surprised you to to discover? I mean, even if it was just during your listening and analysis sessions, what what hadn't you figured on that sort of cropped up? You know what? I, I something that I I found a, a major thing was how McCartney's bass playing right from the beginning, which I always have been a huge fan of his playing, but you know, and I've been listening to these records forever, as we all have. But when you're sitting down, like in that critical mindset, and you're re-listening to a song over and over. You're trying to separate, you know, one side from the other and really hear. I was um, pleasantly surprised at how many little McCartney-esque tricks were used on those early albums. That, And then I was also sort of surprised at how Ringo would gravitate toward a certain fill or feel like on please please me there's one fill in particular that he really likes a lot and he uses it a lot and i never realized that some of these um fills that would later on you know be on i am the walrus and more of the psychedelic stuff he was doing similar things in the early days too it was just that all the tempos were a lot faster. The Beatles songs ended up as time went on, a lot of it ended up slowing down. So you had a lot of these fills that he would do in the early days that he would sort of transpose into something else as they went on later. And something else that I I never realized, even though I had played these songs, little things like just how sophisticated P.S. I Love You is. There's a, the UUU chord progression ended up, you know, basically being like a rock anthem for the seventies, this three chord progression that's completely out Mm -hmm. of key, which is Mm -hmm. um, basically a flat six, a flat seven to the root. 
in the 70s, that just became like rock and roll music. So it's very funny that this sort of innocuous song that was sort of thought of as a little, you know, airy fairy actually had this chord progression in there, along with the intro chord progression that was quite dissonant. And I never really thought of that song that way, even though I had played it before. I wasn't sitting there, you know, gravitating toward that progression in particular. And I realized, you know, as I started dissecting some more things, just how sophisticated the chord progressions were um, on a lot of these songs on the first two albums, that even I, as a fan and as a musician and a producer, never sat down and really looked at in that way before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, Ken? Uh, Anthony, I want to ask you a question which I'm not even sure is possible to answer. And whenever I... (laughs) Get the chance to to interview a drummer. I like to ask this question about Ringo. He's so well known for the interesting fills that he brought to Beatle Records and and further on in his solo career. How much of Ringo's innovation in that direction as a drummer do you give credit to what Ringo here is in his head to play? Or is it simply the fact that he's a left-handed drummer playing a right-handed kit, so he has to move his hands around differently? to different parts of the set a little bit of both i i think definitely the fact that he's a lefty and he always says that he goes for things in the opposite direction because he's playing on a right-handed kit so where a lot of drummers would go for the higher tom first he would go for the lower tom first or his left Mm. hand would hit hit first so that the right hand would hit the snare but i also think he made a lot of very creative decisions like she loves you is a perfect example how the song starts with a heavy floor tom beat which was really innovative for the time and then he goes over to the really splashy hi-hat before they even get into the verse two bars early which is definitely a, a, a decision that he made that he should go into that groove early i think most drummers would wait until the you know a section proper started to switch up his groove so i think he also made a lot of decisions that way Also, um, I noticed that certain songs, because a lot of these songs were brought in and Ringo and George were hearing them for the first time, coming up with their parts, and that was it. And they were recording them quickly and the song's done. But something that uh, we're lucky to have all the BBC sessions and a lot of live recordings, that you see how even songs continue to develop after the fact. I noticed, you know, McCartney coming up with you know, a a little bit of a more innovative bass part on, uh, I believe it's Thank You Girl on live versions, Ringo switching up the drum beat in From Me to You for live versions. So I think that, and so far as Ringo goes, I think that besides the left-handed thing, another big thing he did was the way he hit his hi-hats. He like splashed them side to side, which gave a really unique sound. So I do think the lefty thing has something to do with it. But I just think he was a songwriter's drummer. He was never flashy, and he was always trying to fit in with the song and make the song. And I I think that's a a big part of Harrison, too, that they were the perfect bandmates for Lennon and McCartney because they knew that the song was the most important thing and not their own individual egos and, you know, how much can I do on this? They would just lay down the perfect part for a song. So I do think that is just intuitive when it comes to a musician. You know, you're either like that or you're not. I've, I've had numerous musicians come into my studio to record, and sometimes you have a drummer that just knows how to play to a song. You play him the song a few times. As a producer, you give him a few ideas of what you're thinking feel-wise or part-wise, and then they just know how to go with that and make the song work 
the best. And then there are other ones who come in and sort of play for themselves. And that's something that Ringo never did. I don't think he ever played for himself. He always played for the band. Right. Interesting. No, we've said that time and time again. You know, they played to the song. And sometimes less was more, too. Yeah. I wanted to ask one last question because um, you do say here in the book, I'm going to read this word for word. Although George Martin was the producer of the majority of the Beatles records, McCartney was most definitely the musical director. Now, you feel this way even early on? I do feel even early on because when you listen to like outtakes from early on, you know, McCartney's pretty bossy. And he's even said himself, like when he's listened, you know, now to early takes, you know, on I Want to Hold Your Hand. And you could see that he is he's the one on the floor that's sort of leading them. I know if, if it's a Lennon song, Lennon definitely has a bit more of a say. But I think from the beginning to the end, you know, you've got a producer up in the control room and especially in EMI studios very far away from you. Someone sort of has to run the show from from downstairs. And I definitely think that that was McCartney, because even when it came to, you know, some drum part ideas and I think he was just more vocal. Uh, you know, this is much later on, of course, but during the Let It Be sessions, you could listen to a lot of the Nagra reel outtakes and on Lennon songs, Lennon isn't even giving ideas on to how to make the song better. It's coming from Paul. It's coming from George. So I do think right from the beginning, McCartney, he was always, he was the best musician. I mean, he was the most well-versed. He could play the drums well. He could play piano. He could play bass. He could play guitar. He was the only one in the band that could go into a studio by himself and come out with a finished record. And I even think, you know, he didn't do it in 1963, but I think it would have been a possibility. I mean, he had played drums for them on a number of gigs when, they didn't have a drummer, so I've never heard, I don't think any of us have ever heard McCartney playing drums at that early stage. But I'm assuming, you know, he had the kid at home that was his brother's kid. I'm assuming even from the beginning, he was a competent drummer. So I really do think from the beginning, he was the musical director of the band. John might have been the leader, which in the beginning, they even would say in interviews that John was the leader. But Paul was definitely, I think, the one that when they were in the studio and they were trying to get takes done, he would be the one on the floor to move things along. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Thank, thank you. Um, Al? Uh, even though Anthony uh, uh, deals with the first two albums in, in this book, he's done a lot of work regarding the entire Beatles catalog in other venues. Uh, he's been a regular the last couple of years at the Fest for Beatles fans. You'll be hearing from me soon about that, Anthony. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, and he's also uh, ventured into the world of podcasting. Uh, now, tell us about your your weekly your weekly podcast and what you bring to the table there. Um, well, I have a show on Beatlesarama.com called the Beatles multi-track meltdown. And I've done so far, I think 51 shows. And what I do with the shows, I basically separate the tracks. So you might just hear the drums and the strings from a song, or maybe just the vocals from a song. And I try to really give the experience of being in a recording studio where you can separate things and just listen to elements. And you hear a lot of things that when you listen to the whole record that you would never hear. And even as a little kid, I always remember, you know, with the early albums, you could just listen to one side and hear the vocals, just listen to the other side and hear the 
instruments or, you know, you could do out of phase stuff with your speakers so that you would hear things that you wouldn't normally hear. And it always fascinated me. And over the years, I've, I've you know, gotten a very big collection of, you know, either Beatles multi-tracks or in my studio, been able to manipulate things to take certain instruments out. So that's what my show is. I've done it's it's mostly Beatles, but I've done a, a couple shows with artists that have worked with the Beatles. So, you know, I did a, a, a show where I had David Bowie's fame on there and isolated the guitar parts, which are fascinating to hear by themselves or maybe some Elton John song. So, uh, you know, it's 95% Beatles, but there have been a few things that I've done to hear some of their contemporaries and artists they've worked with. And I've also played a lot of solo material uh, from them as well in the same way to really just isolate certain tracks to hear them in a different way. And it's just been always something that I've always loved to do. So I actually started doing it at the Fest for Beatle fans when my book first came out. All right. Um, the York Fest that was in Manhattan for the 50th anniversary uh, in 2014. And yeah. I did... Um, a show there, and then I turned it into a radio show from from that. Hmm. Oh, that's that definitely sounds inter- interesting. What's the what's the best Beatles track? What's the? Or let, let me put it this way: What's the what Beatles track was the most fascinating for you to do that way that you've done so far? One of my favorites is Billy Preston's organ playing on "I Want You." I've always, huh. you know, I'm, I'm I play you know bass, drums, guitar, keys, but. I'm mainly a keyboard player. That's my first instrument. And I've always loved that part and I always felt it was really low in the mix. So being able to isolate just his organ for the song is is amazing. And one of the other things I love, too, is just the drums and strings of I Am The Walrus. I, I think that Ringo's part there is a precursor to hip-hop. Like, there's groove on that and the sound of the drums are so ridiculous. And George Martin's score. You know, it's it's one of my favorite Beatles songs and it would be amazing without the score but what george martin did for that song i think it's one of the highlights of you know george martin production on any beatles song we could i think we could do a whole show just on that i mean oh i wish we'd, uh, we, we we really should mark that down and do that sometime and go through that uh, that would be that would be very interesting uh anthony this has been wonderful um Thank you. And, and like I said, uh, at some point, I would love to see us do another show and go through the technical stuff and talk about, uh, you know, the uh, pulling the tracks out and and, uh, you know, and that whole thing with the with the other podcast. I'd love to see us do something with that. And hopefully we can. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. I, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been, it's been a blast talking to you about the Beatles. It's always great to talk to other people who know so much about the Beatles. Well, thank you for uh, for being with us. Um, until next week, um, for Alan Cozen, Al Sussman, Ken Michaels, and myself, Steve Marinucci, I want to say thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.